who it is, Belle. Oh, hi, Belle. Look who it is, Belle. Oh, my goodness, Belle. Look how who... are you? I miss you. <laughs> Teresa, she was not sleeping well. She was getting up a lot, blah, blah, blah. And about, I don't know, a month ago, I had rice for dinner and I had some left over and I gave her probably half a cup or so. She slept through the night. So the next night I thought, hell, I'm making rice again. <laughs> so for a month, I've been giving her rice at six or seven o'clock at night. She's sleeping through the night and she started walking longer walks again. She got to where she really didn't want to walk. And now she's doing two milers. Rice. Wow. Rice. Same as babies, right? When we start weaning them off of their bottles, we give them rice so that they will sleep for longer periods of time at night. Yoga Off the Mat is a podcast about life and all of its blunders, bloopers, and blissfulness. Yoga is not a sequence of pretzel shapes that we practice on the mat. It's an intentional lifestyle. I'm your host, Teresa Macy, certified yoga therapist, yogini, licensed massage therapist, and quite possibly certifiably nuts about this crazy, beautiful world we live in together. Join me on this journey of life through conversations and connections. Welcome to the real-life world of yoga at Yoga Off The Map. Wherever we're going, I could not say for sure. Yes, so I'm Sherry L. Baker, MFT. I spent 25 years in interior design. I had my own stores. Well, I didn't start out having my own stores, but after five or six years or, or so, I started my own businesses. And then I sold the stores, and I took a year off. And in about six months, I was ready to start doing something. I had always assumed I would just go back to work for some of my friends and keep doing interior design. I just didn't want to have the stores. And I heard an ad for Hahnemann's Family Therapy Program on NPR. I don't remember what they said, but it was so good. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to go talk to them. So I did. I like them. They like me. And I did their program. It was incredible. Family therapy was a lot founded in Philadelphia. And a number of the people who were the founders were my teachers. I did not know it was founded in Philadelphia. I didn't either. I mean, it was just a lot of the major players were in Philadelphia and others were in D.C. So they would come up and join, you know, all the things that they were doing. Uh, Gregory Bateson, who was married to Margaret Mead, was out on the West Coast, but he collaborated with the Philadelphia crowd. was really interesting. Wow, I don't even have to do your intro because that was so beautiful. Um, <laughs> did you record it? I did, yes. Hearing, um, hearing where you, um, all of the different things that you've done from interior design to uh, a master of family therapy, which sounds like a very creative and design oriented profession as well. It is, you're just designing from the inside. Yeah. As opposed to designing the outside. And it, yes, exactly. And my, I started my first 
at Hahnemann, they put me in my first internship two weeks before school started. Okay. And I said, what? I'm going to see clients and school hasn't even started. <laughs> and they said, don't worry, you're going to get easy cases. You'll be heavily, heavily supervised. And I knew how to move people through a project. If I was helping a family and we were, let's just say we were redoing a family room. I would talk about, okay, what's in here that you want to keep? Hmm. What's in here that you want to get rid of? How do you want it to work? How do you want it to look when we're done? How are you going to use it? So I knew how to move people through a project. So I just used. Well, Sherry did such a great job of um, introducing herself. So I think I'm going to move <laughs> along and um, talk about Sherry and our friendship. So we met 10 years ago and we met on a retreat. It was the first time it was a yin yoga retreat. We spent, I think it was a week together in week. Costa Rica. Yes. Um, long-held friendships have come out of that re that retreat, but some of the things that really stick in my <laughs> mind um, about you, Sherry, <gasps> is how easy it was to become your friend. And it's not oh, only how nice. easy it is for me to become your friend, but I can remember walking <laughs> down the street, going to breakfast with you um, later on in our relationship, and there isn't a person that you pass that you don't <laughs> stop and say hello to. And it's not a, a quick nod as if it's this offhanded, yeah, I see you kind of a thing. It's an actual interaction where you look somebody in the eyes and say, hello, how are you today? It's something that was so impressive that I was like, wow, what a connection is made with every person that you see. And I think it goes beyond that physicality because one of the... Um, other things that's so important is somehow you either magically or intuitively always call me when I need to talk to you most. You'll reach out and be like, oh, do you want to go to lunch or we haven't seen each other? I don't know how you feel it, but you do. <laughs> so for that, I am truly grateful for our relationship. Usually, because we don't see each other all the time. You know, it's not like you live in New Hope and we would have all these interactions. Um, I would be thinking about you and I would think about you and think about you and Larry. And then, you know, I would quit. And then but when people come up for me two or three times, I think I have to call them. <laughs> There's a reason why this keeps coming back into my into my thoughts, into my consciousness. I have kind of the same opinion. You know, I always wonder, my first husband said um, he was a admirer of, oh, da, da, da. I just forgot, um, the magician that said he would come back. He, he was underwater. Oh, how do I forget? That? Oh, was that Houdini? Houdini. He was Houdini. a, he was a um, uh, admirer of Houdini. He loved his magic and what oh. he did. And he used to say, if it's possible to really come back, because Houdini believed that he could come back after his death. And so my first husband would say, if it's possible to come back like Houdini oh. thinks, I will come back and chat with you. And I've often wondered what those oh. connections are past this physical body. And sometimes I believe that it's very similar to what you said. 
if a favorite song comes on and um, I'm thinking oh. about somebody and then the song comes on or, you know, one day I was talking oh. to Larry about this concept of, um, you know, whether people come back and we were driving down the road in Savannah, Georgia, and on the back of a stop sign, the word kook was written, K-O-O-K. And mm -hmm. that was my first husband's nickname in high school was kook. So kook. there's these ideas, yeah, kook. His name was Kulik and people called him kook. But these ways that kook. we connect from how we build relationships and how we stay connected over time and space and distance and maybe this world to the next, who really knows, right? Bill must have something to add. Maybe to. she has something to say. <laughs> <laughs> she has a conversation that she's trying she, to. She doesn't like when I talk to somebody else. Oh, yes. Unless they're here. If they're here, it's fine. Oh. But the, 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 the iPad's not doing it for her. Do you think it might be, and this is a little off subject, but maybe not. Do you think it might be because you had mentioned she's going blind and so she relies a lot on her scent, her senses or her sense of smell and her hearing and she's hearing a voice, but there's no other like input? There's no other cue. You know, yeah. she can't smell you, blah, blah, blah. Um, well, she's been blind for six years and this is fairly new this barking when I'm talking. She has dementia. She's 16, which translates to 112. <laughs> and one of the, I mean, sometimes even when nobody's here, she will just bark. Mm -hmm. It seems like we have a one hour spell every night, somewhere between four and seven, where she just barks. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I found that helps that is I just pick her up and carry her around like a baby. But if I put her down, she barks. She's just like a baby. If <laughs> you put her down, put them down, they cry again. <laughs> Saying I just need to cuddle. Just because I'm older doesn't mean I don't like that same things I liked when I was a baby. Um, exactly. So this, this discussion, this podcast, it's really focused on yoga, but yoga off the mat. And so can you tell me how long you've been practicing yoga? I started practicing when I was 22 and I'm 77, so 55. So I've been, now I haven't practiced as routinely as I practice now for all of that time. Um, but I've always, it, it's always been there. And even if I didn't practice routinely, I probably have been practicing, I would say for the last 12 or 13 years, I've had, you know, a weekly practice where I would do anywhere from seven to four classes. Like my normal thing now is probably four classes. I've never been good at doing yoga by myself. Well, I have a seven minute headstand practice that I do by myself every, I stand on my head and watch Jeopardy. <laughs> Does it help so, you get the answers better? Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Sometimes um, I don't get to it during Jeopardy. And then if I'm watching Wheel, well, if I'm going to do it, I just stand on my head and watch Wheel. But I can't do the Wheel crosswords if I'm upside down. <laughs> 
<laughs> you can think better, you but walk. So back to yoga. So I've been practicing for 55 years and I, I've always been interested in the spiritual and in the, a lot of, when I first started practicing yoga, my first teacher was this incredible black woman. I'm guessing here I am 22. I'm guessing she was late thirties, early forties. And one of the things she said is do this your whole life. Do this your whole life. It will be good for your mind. And as you age, you're going to find that it's good for your body and you're going to want a sturdy body when you're old. Huh. What a great, right? And she's right because you still have a seven minute headstand practice. That's I still have a headstand. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and I think there are a lot of other things that work better because I do yoga. I mean, I know that it helps keep me fit and limber and there are all kinds of things that it, that it does. And it keeps all the parts. Like the great thing about yoga is a steady practice over the course of a week. I'm working, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm working everything. And so when you say everything, do you talk about the physical part of practice as well as like the meditation? And I'm sure for a seven minute um, headstand practice, there's a lot of focus that you have to bring in. So the softer, um, the softer practices, the spiritual practices, how do they influence not only you coming to your mat, the, but what you're taking off of it? I believe that the physical practice informs the spiritual and vice versa. I, I've always been interested in the spirit side. I'm curious about it. You were talking about Houdini in the beginning and about come, who thought he could come back and, and whatnot. And I just always wondered what what is all that? I mean, when I was younger, I think I were I not worried. I wondered like, where are we going to go and what's it going to be? And I have a friend from Mississippi who is a playwright and he often spent Thanksgiving <coughs> with me and my family. And one time <coughs> we were talking after Thanksgiving. Oh, we were talking until three in the morning, you know, solving <laughs> life's grand philosophical problems. And we had been talking about this, that, and the other. And finally <coughs> I said, I got to go to bed. And he said, well, you know what, honey? He said, no matter what we all think, we're all going to be surprised. <laughs> and I suspect he's right. Um, and I also think because of the way we are, so much of the things that we put our attention on are inconsequential. And I mean, not that we don't have to, like I have to make a grocery list. There are things I have to do. I have to figure out a way in a minute to get Belle to shut up. <laughs> um, and so there are things that we, that we have to do. I am a follower of Thich Nhat Hanh. I, over the last several months, have been listening to Sadhguru, who is all over YouTube. He has um, an ashram in Mumbai. And he also has one outside of Chattanooga. And the more I listen to people that have a lot transformed themselves, 
they talk about being quiet and being still. And I do find that quiet and still is something that I'm pulled toward every once in a while. And I've been thinking this for probably 25 or 30 years. I, I often thought I could be a cloistered nun. I could be off someplace, you know, I could be a Buddhist nun. Uh-huh. The Thich Nhat Hanh monks and nuns don't really talk except when they have to. You know, they are a silent, they are a silent group. I could live with them without much trouble. Yeah, I, um, I'm i pretty good at entertaining myself. I do like quiet. Um, maybe it's because I'm the fifth child of eight and I grew up in a house that always had 10 people in it. So the skill right. of, of learning to be quiet, be on your own, kind of to um, step away from the things that are going on around, you, around me um, is just... Mm-hmm a natural outcrop of growing up in in a really um, busy house, you know, eight children and two parents, there's always something going on. So I've learned that, but apparently I learned it when I was just a child that I was able to entertain myself. It's one of the things that my mom, you know, sometimes we don't remember actual events, but we remember the stories of the events. Right. And my mom would say, I was, all of her kids were the easiest in some way. So this is not just for me, but the way that I was easiest was that I was good at entertaining myself and moving from one thing to the other um, Mm -hmm. without much fuss. Like she tells a story of being in Macy's in, in Brooklyn and I get lost and nobody knows where I am. And she goes looking for me and I'm sitting on the floor in a corner playing with a dead mouse that I found on the floor. And she was like, you know, no matter what it is, I can find a place to be quiet and something to entertain myself. To entertain you. Whatever (laughs) that story. Yeah. Whatever that space is. So maybe I've been practicing for meditation since I was a small child. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, But it was a solace for me in a very busy household to be Mm -hmm. able to sit in a group and still um, be quiet and to myself and not really um, have to engage so much in what was going on outside. Um, And I think that served me well for my yoga practice, but also for uh, yoga off the mat to be able to sit with it, whatever it is, um, I think is a really beneficial for us to be able to process um, emotions, thoughts, whatever is going on. And I've been working really hard lately at this concept of yoga off the mat. And I think it's because a lot of the way Westerners um, discuss yoga is very much asana based. It's a series of movements that we do on the mat that keep our body fit. And so I've been paying attention, especially last year, of how I see people take those concepts of, you know, self-study, awareness, focus, um, mindfulness, and blend them seamlessly into an intentional lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I know that many of our conversations, you are really skilled, probably from your training um, with yoga for all these years, but also in your family practice of being able to ask 
um, intentionally thoughtful questions in conversations, you know, that come across authentically as non-judgmental, but definitely interest in getting from one place to the other to um, hear information or to spark a new way for me to think of something or think about something. Um, so would you like kind of put those practices from your family practice uh, on all those years of helping people through a process? Do you think it was influenced by starting yoga so early in your life? Do the two blend in some way? I think they blend wonderfully because I, as a therapist, you need to do a lot more listening than talking. And it's important to get people to tell you not just the surface of things, but what's cooking underneath, what's, what's going on, what's important to them, what troubles them, what delights them, what tickles them. Mm. And the more I know about that, the more I know how to open a door for them. Therapy is the therapist's work. The therapist can't do the work for the client. Mm. The therapist can open the door. And I do think that yoga, the, the practice of going deeper. You know, if you're in a hard, uh, Karen Eisen, one of my teachers, often talks about if you're in a hard pose, how do you, where do you go to let you hold it? Provided that it's appropriate for you to hold it. I mean, sometimes you have to come out of a hard pose. It's not appropriate to stay in it. But if it is appropriate, then how do you go deeper to find what you need to do. And in working with a family, if they're having conflict, that conflict is natural as brushing their teeth. That's their dance. Mm. And in order to get them to change, you have to almost get them to brush their teeth with the other hand. So, you have to have a lot of information before you can talk people, offer them a way, might this work? And so yoga from going deep inside. Teresa, I'm going to go, let me take, let me just take a, can I take a short break and take her out? Okay, your question back before was, is it often, whether it's a yoga posture or whatever, is, does it often come from more internal? I think it comes from the, the meaning that we give to it. Like what's, what meaning do we, do we make of this? I, had, I did a seminar with a guy in Boston years ago and he would not let people say, you make me mad or you, mm you made me this, you made me that. He said, it's, I made myself. I made myself. Your, your student who had the ethical conflict was making herself upset around whatever. Now she may have had to make a difficult decision about 
whatever it was her boss was doing. But does she have the luxury of leaving? Right. Yeah. You know, I've been lucky. I've never had to stay in a job I didn't like. I always had the luxury of leaving. But I know that there are plenty of people who don't have that. I mean, I've had them as as clients. I've watched, I think back in the 80s, I watched my clients who were in um, corporations. I watched corporations take away, maybe they fired the person who worked above my client, promoted my client. So my client then had to do the job above, but they didn't take away his job below. Or they'll fire somebody below and then this person has to do their job in the one below. So the new slavery in corporations, I think, is that they want people to do too much. And they pretend, the corporate leaders pretend that they can. And then the workers, for one of a job, wind up pretending they can too. And they do what they can. I had a client who worked for the IRS. This was a bazillion years ago. And she talked about how they couldn't literally do the case loads that got plunked up on their desk. And then a few years later, I heard uh, there was a huge big scandal in Philadelphia at the IRS center where my client had worked. And I think there was another one as well. They found all of these tax returns stuffed into the ceiling. They had those drop ceilings. And the clients, you know, if they had this physical load, if they actually couldn't do it, they were just stuffing it up in the ceiling. Wow. And we, wow is right. I mean, that was their solution. You're telling me I have to do it, but I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. But so that was, that was the thing. Now people do that with issues. Mm -hmm. They, they, they stuff their issues. They stuff it by drinking, drugging, eating, shopping, watching too much TV, whatever, whatever it is that they do, uh, doing too much exercise. So as much as we can, we need to be confronting the issue as it is. And Terry Real, who would not let people say, you make me, you make me angry. It's like, no. You make yourself angry. I may be doing something. So, but you have the position of what do you do if somebody behaves badly? You can say whatever you need to say. You can go take a walk for a moment. There are things, but more and more. Do you remember what was that thing? I think it was called um, EST, EST. EST, yes. It was. E-S-T, E-S-T, mm-hmm. and they would have these three and four day weekends yes. and they would get people, well, basically what, now they had some questionable practices, <laughs> but they were trying to get people to understand that they had responsibility for themselves. And a lot that comes into family therapy. Mm. It's, you have responsibility for yourself. Now, what you see in family therapy a lot is When I first started working, I worked for an agency. We had court adjudicated clients. We had school 
mandated clients. And for the most part, the only way you get a family to family therapy is by force, because otherwise the family will bring a kid to therapy and say, he's the problem. Yeah, she's the problem. They have an identified patient that they blame everything on. In biblical terms, it's the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. Um, In Jewish practice, once a year, the community would take all of their sins, pile it onto a scapegoat, a goat, and then they would send the goat out into the desert to die (laughs) with all of their sins. So a lot of what happens in relationships and in groups is a person will take something that they don't know how or want to deal with and they'll blame it on the other person Mm. or the group or or whomever. So um, with family therapy, if you get everybody together, if the father says, the kid's doing so-and-so, the kid is there and the kid, I will say, what's your side of this? And then the kid has a different story. And there, I had one father, he was a delightful man, but he was very authoritative, very authoritative. And he was trying to just dictate to his son what to do. And I, I wouldn't let them come separately. They had to come together. And as I talked more and more to the father about, well, why do you want him to do it this way? It was because, well, he'll be able to get a better job. Mm-hmm. He'll be able to get a high school diploma. He'll be able to. It was he was trying to force the issue for something that would be good for his son. However, the son, he didn't say, he never explained that to the kid. In fact, he didn't even know it himself until those questions got asked. Yes. And once the son understood that the father ultimately had his best interest at heart, it made a difference and that the father could see that the son understood let them have conversations in a different way. Mm. So the middle person, the family therapist can be helpful um, in bringing about the conversation. And another tack in therapy is that I teach people to talk and I teach people to listen. So the talker can only make I statements. I think this, I feel this, when this happens, I wonder about that, I feel this, that, and the other. And then the listener has to just repeat back to the talker what they've said. Because most people, when another person's talking, they're thinking about what they're going to say. They're not listening. But if you have to listen and say it back, you have to pay attention to what's being said. And just that simple act, well, it's not all that simple. First of all, I train people by putting items on a desk and having them talk about the items and they can only do two or three sentences at a time because you can't listen to somebody for more than two or three sentences. And the person saying statements can only talk about 
it from their perspective. So there's an awful lot, there are an awful lot of skills that could actually be taught in school that would help people get along better. Hmm. Uh, there's, there are an awful lot of skills that could be taught in yoga classes that would help people deal with what actually is, is going on. You know, when you're in this posture that you're loving, what's going on in your head? Mm-hmm. What are the pleasant things you're saying? What good things is it bringing up for you? Um, when you're in a posture that you don't like so much, how could you find the good parts about it? First of all, when I'm working with people, I always want them to look for the good. All of us have enough bad. We remember the bad. We noodle it around in our heads. You know, we give it all this real estate in our heads. But there are all kinds of good things. We take those things, we stick them under the pillow and forget about them. And if people are able to think more about what's the good part about this? What do I like about this? It just turns things. Yeah, it gives a whole different perspective. I remember reading about, um, and maybe you suggested this book, I'm not sure, but the, the theme of the book was how do you invest your energy and protecting your own energy? Yes. And one of the lines that always kind of stuck with me after reading, the, uh, reading this book was the question, if your energy was money or currency, would you choose to invest it in something that you knew would de- would decrease in value? And of course right. the answer is no, you're looking for a positive return on that investment. And then expanded on that concept that energy is exactly the same. If we're taking our energy and spending all this time investing it in something that doesn't build us up, that in something that doesn't flip that switch to see the things that allow us to have gratitude and contentment. Not that we're walking around with blinders on that we don't see the others, but that there's definitely the two sides of whatever situation we're struggling with or thinking about. And if even if we just started with that idea of, am I investing my energy in something that is even worth my time, right? So sometimes we have all this energy in rehashing an argument that we had that has long since gone, but yet it's still taking up real estate in our brain. It's still investing our energy in something that's depleting rather than something building. that is building and uplifting. So exactly that, that intentionality of knowing that we are the the keeper of our key of what we think about right we intentionally get to choose and i think in the same book maybe it was a different one was another concept that 90 percent of the things we worry about never actually happen but yet we invested so much time worrying about them and they never come to be so right i was just talking to my granddaughters they said um you know one of my granddaughters was having trouble sleeping and, and her sister who is gonna be 10 tomorrow is a young yogi. She loves everything about yogi. Um, she's in one of my earlier podcasts. We are writing a 
yoga book together. She really wanted to understand um, more information about the chakras. And she calls me the other day and says, hey, Nana, my sister's having trouble sleeping. Can you tell me what might be out of balance and what practices we can use to change that? And so she and I wound up in a discussion. She said, we were talking about what we were afraid of and now we can't sleep. So the conversation soon turned to what are you afraid of? Why are you afraid of that? And is that fear something that's realistic in keeping you awake at night? Because one of the fears was snakes. And I was like, well, you're at home in your bed in Pennsylvania, the chances of finding a snake in your bed is pretty slim. <laughs> so they were able to exactly. really make that, you know, for, for being so young, they've taught me so many things, but she was able to make that transition to, this is something that we're struggling with. What kind of practice or what things can I do to transform that into something that gives me a more positive result? And to reach out and ask that question, to recognize that I know that I can have an intention and make a choice here that's going to change the situation, but I don't know what it is. So that was just really a great way of talking about honoring balance in your life. There, there's always gonna be fear of something, right? Because it balances out confidence and not being afraid but as you go through that, can you look at it objectively and say, is this really how I want to spend my day? And then take ownership. If you say, yeah, I really want to be right. depressed and, and I'm worrying about. And also it's good. It's, it's one thing to say to people, you know, you're giving this time in your head. Don't give it time in your head. However, if you've got a habit that's in place, the only way you're going to get rid of it is to have a different habit. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a replacement. And what's the replacement? This is a funny story. My family was highly critical. They were, you know, I mean, they were nice and they loved us and we all knew that, but they were snarky. For example, if, if I had on a new pair of earrings and I saw one of my aunts, my aunt might say, oh, are those new earrings? And I would say, yes. And she'd say, well, and she would scrunch up her nose. Well, I don't know if I would have bought those, <laughs> you know, which means to say, <laughs> what crappy earrings you've got. <laughs> and there was always that thing. But whenever they were delivering one of their snarky little things, the nose scrunching up went with it. Can you see me scrunching my nose? I can see it, yes. Can you see it? Yes. yes. For you podcast, okay. you can't, so, but if you want to feel it, scrunch your nose. <laughs> well, years ago, uh, my Whoa. husband and I had been to a, a, a group, a, a, a cocktail party. And then a bunch of us were going out to dinner and there was a new restaurant down the road and we wanted to go, but we figured it was going to be mobbed because it was new and popular. And when we got there, I said, well, how long are we willing to wait? I'll run in and check. 
So we decided that we would, we, we'd wait 25 minutes, but other than that, we'd go find something else. So I went in, spoke to the hostess, and um, there are six of us, and she said, oh, well, it's a 45-minute wait. And I said, okay, I think we're too hungry. Mm-hmm. And when, so what she said back to me was, now watch me, Teresa. Okay. <laughs> Did you see that? I saw that. She scrunched up the nose. Oh my. <laughs> she scrunched up her nose and said, okay. And you know what? I knew what I had done because she had delivered news to me that I didn't want to hear. And I know that I had gone, oh, we are too hungry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm doing it. I swore I would never do it. Now, I'm in my 40s at this point. So I thought, damn it, I'm not going to do that. I And I'm doing it automatically. I didn't mean to do it. I mean, I thought I had a civil response. We're too hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, but I delivered it with that scrunched up nose so I went home I stood in front of my mirror and I scrunched up my nose and then I thought what is the opposite what opposite facial expression can I do that will render the scrunching impossible to do so if you raise your eyebrows you can't scrunch your nose (laughs) and raise your eyebrows at the same time so I would stand and and I I would think I would think of things like coming up where I might get an answer that I didn't like you know or I thought of past answers that I didn't like, and I would think of a, a civilized response, but I would deliver it with my eyebrows raised, which is not offensive. Right. <laughs> I mean, you may look a little goofy, but you don't look pissed off, you know. So I trained myself out of out of that. If, if I heard news that I didn't want, I trained myself into raising my eyebrows. I had taught myself to deliver a civilized response, not to say things like, oh, I don't know if I went and bought those. You know, I didn't do that. I didn't say those tacky things, but I was still scrunching up my <laughs> nose. So I un- So if you're doing something, if you're giving things in your head real estate and you would prefer to do something else, you've got to find an opposite. You have to offer an opposite choice Mm -hmm. or another choice. It may not have to be opposite. You have to think when I was little and I was afraid to, to like at night, I would be afraid. People get afraid at night. It seems to be not uncommon and especially little kids mm-hmm. um i think it came from a time i am guessing it's evolutionary because people used to all sleep like um foxes in a den you know where they were all together oh, yeah. so i'm guessing it's an evolutionary holdover but when i was little and i would be scared i would think wait a minute now mind you Teresa, i was like five or six and i thought I'm going to think about some of my favorite things. So it was chocolate cake, banana pudding, ice cream. And I would just say those things over and over. I would think I'm lying there thinking I'm scared. I'm scared. I would think chocolate cake, banana pudding, ice cream. <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Yeah. That idea. Uh, Good. And that's yoga. 
Yeah, our practices get stronger, even if we don't know what the practice is, right? You were, you had this practice of scrunching your nose, it was, you were unaware, but the practice gets stronger because we repeat it. And it's until we have the awareness that we even have it. I had similar things when I worked in the dental office and people would have TMJ problems and pain in their jaw, it right. was because they were clenchers and grinders and they held their stress there. And so their pattern was clenching and grinding. But mm -hmm. if you put your tongue on the roof of your mouth, right behind your top teeth, you can't clench your jaw. You can't close it all the way. So mm -hmm. I used to help people to replace the pattern. You know, when you notice that you're clenching or grinding, rather than being upset and angry and judging yourself for doing it, just replace it with the habit of putting your tongue on the roof of your mouth. And the pattern mm -hmm. goes away. And I think that is kind of the power of whatever it is, whether it's yoga or whatever our practices are, our studies, they just build this level of awareness that allows us to notice when we scrunch up our nose or clench our teeth or have a snarky answer, the things that we need to just say, you know what, this is a pattern I can let go of. This is something I no longer have to hold on to because it didn't mm -hmm. serve the woman that you- it didn't serve. It didn't serve anybody in there, but, but it was also something that until you saw it mirrored back to you, you were unaware that you had adopted it. That I was doing it. I had changed my wording you know, I had gone to the trouble of changing my wording to, to be able, instead of offering a snarky response to people, I would say something kind or neutral. And, but the nose thing was still, was still going on. And in yoga, on the mat, off the mat, mm -hmm. you know, instead of this, do this. Yeah. Or this works really well. Keep doing that. Yeah, we feel the uh, alignment in our body can really be the same as how do we align our thoughts, our reactions, right? Sometimes even so, it's it's that simplest little tweak to change it. All you had to do is raise your eyebrows. Not a major thing, right? No. <laughs> right? It was a simple modification that changed both the delivery and the receiving of what you wanted to tell her you would were not um you just were too hungry to wait <laughs> right i was just too hungry to wait who's gonna argue who's gonna argue with that exactly. and also also i think a lot yoga like that um the black woman who was my first yoga teacher that i told you about she was really quiet she would tell you about the posture, demonstrate the posture. Then we would go into it and she did not talk. Mm. And I love that. And to this day, I mean, I don't have a single yoga teacher that does not natter his or her head off the whole time they're doing stuff. <laughs> and for that, I, my yoga practice while in yoga practice is to just not let that get inside my head when in effect I'd like to go up there and smack them you know like shut the fuck up yeah oh but all of 
of this talking, and you know, we have social media. I think people used to be quieter. I, I don't, all of this talking all the time, we have news, we have telly, we have, we're, we're in the presence of verbiage all the time. And things didn't used to be like that. Yeah. I mean, think pre-radio. At night, people talk to each other. But I remember um, I grew up on a farm in northern Mississippi. And for the most part, I was with my grandparents for a number of years. And we didn't have electricity until I was six because the lines weren't there. Mm. So it got dark. When it got dark, we turned on oil lamps and, you know, we would play games or we would read or as a child, I was read to a lot, but then we went to bed fairly early and got up when the sun came. Yeah. So it was a whole different world. I mean, there are just, there are too many words flying around these days. I had a relative, uh, executive assistant for a very high powered, influential company man in New York City. Very prestigious career, lots of, I'm sure, tons of pressure, lots of multitasking. There was a lot to get done to be really good and efficient in her position. So I was at her, her house for dinner one night with other family members, and she started asking me about yoga. So she's like, so mm. tell me about this yoga thing that you do and, and what's it all about and what is this meditation? And so I, I just started giving her the basics of, you know, having different practices that we choose, right? Because there's so many of them that you can pick and choose the ones that you mm. want to focus on in your life. I said, but, you know, the idea, you know, speaking to your point of taking time in our day to just be quiet, to listen to our thoughts, to try and have a single point of focus so we don't have, uh, as one of my teachers would say, a bunch of drunk monkeys jumping around in our head all the time. We <laughs> were able to get that, that quiet time to just sit and reflect and and or just be totally quiet and listen to the sounds that surround you, whatever, whatever that is. And so she kind of looked at me and, and very without scrunching up her nose, I might add, um, <laughs> said, well, <laughs> for somebody with a personality like yours, that would be very simple. But for somebody like me, that's, it's impossible. There's no way you could sit and be quiet like that. So it's very um, in alignment with your type of personality, but not with mine. And her son was there at the time. And he looked at me and he said, do you got this or do you want me to take this one? And I was like, oh. <laughs> I said, you go right ahead. And he said, the reason her personality is the way that it is, is because of the practices. And I imagine that there's probably sometimes that she sits down to have that quiet time and has the same challenge of quieting her mind and being able to be in that quiet space that we all have that. And I was like, yes, that's the practice. You know, some days we sit down for quiet reflection and our brain just is very cooperative. It quiets down and, and we have that time and space. But the brain's job is to talk to us. That's what it does. 
that that is the brain's job and it's just like the scrunching of the nose if you want the brain to be quiet you have to figure out a way pay attention to your breathing yeah. and as Thich Han says you know when your mind wanders off don't give it a hard time just bring it back i'm breathing in i'm breathing out yeah. i'm breathing in i'm breathing out that's one of the reasons mantra for meditation is so good because it does give you something to do. In addition to yoga, I'm a longtime meditator. Mm -hmm. and, and I am a better meditator with mantra than I am if I'm just supposed to be quiet. Yeah. I'm also a better meditator with other people. Than, I mean, I've done it long enough now that I have my practice. Now, here's what I had to figure out about meditation. I used to kind of plan to do it at some time during the day or the evening and I would have a quiet and I would do it. But what I ultimately found out is that I needed to do it in the morning because once I get going, I'm going. And then I figured out that I couldn't even get up and brush my teeth. When I woke up, I needed to just sit up or lie there. So, I mean, sometimes I just lie with my hand, with my palms up and do my meditating right. then and there before I even, before I even get up. It's really important to know yourself and to honor as opposed to try and figure, try and model yourself after some style that someone else has presented to you. Because, you know, I don't think it matters whether I do it first thing in the morning before I brush my teeth. Like a lot, I've, I've heard teachers say, you know, brush your teeth, wash your face, blah, 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 do all these preps beforehand. Well, if I did that, I'd just get up and keep going. <laughs> it would <So. laughs> Yeah, it would never, ever get done. I know I have another um, yoga teacher. She studied mindfulness. Her name is also Sherry, by the way. And she's been, when I'm taking her classes, she's teaching um, meditation with your eyes open, which I find really, really challenging. Really? You have this soft gaze at something and to keep my eyes open. So that's a whole nother practice that I need to look at and say, okay, I guess my, my most surprising meditation ever was on a train into Philadelphia. I was going in to teach um, in a massage school and I had a really busy morning. I didn't have time to meditate. I ran to just about catch the train. And when I got on there, I know if I show up in front of the classroom with all of this, like I've been rushing all morning energy, I'm not going to do my best job, but I'm on a train. Like, how am I going to meditate here? So I figured, well, if I just close my eyes and try, it's either going to be effective or not, but not trying is definitely going to do nothing. My brain just kept running over all of the things that I had done that morning. And then my ears started to hear the sound of the train. So the trains make that. And it was right. rolling. It's a steady down. rhythm. Yes. And I realized that sound, even the quiet sounds that I'm verbalizing to myself are a wave. They're a sound wave, just like the train sound was, the rhythm was. So anytime a thought came up, I would adjust my, my thought 
to the sound of the train and just say these vibrations will meld and the thought will go away with the rhythm of the train. And I did that for a little bit as I began the meditation. And the next thing I know, the person sitting next to me was hitting me going, this is your stop. This is your stop. And I was like, holy. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it was, I have no recollection from putting that thought there to how I got to Philadelphia. It was the best train ride I ever had. Absolutely. 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 It's, you know, we are... We are such marvelous and interesting. I mean, being human is absolutely fabulous. You, you don't have to do stuff. You can just, I mean, if you just, I mean, you know, how many, how many bones do we have in our hands? Oh, gosh, I don't have the there's exact them, number, there's a there's lot. 15 or 20. Yeah, there's a lot, right? There, there's a lot. The same thing in the, but just watching, you, you know, you've seen babies like <laughs> stare at their hand or their or their foot. Uh-huh. We could all do more of that. It's um, processes fascinate me. Yes, I love to watch. I love to watch things being done, things being made. I love to see how that happens, and that we're alive. You know, that we have, that all these things are going on all the time. Our blood is pumping. Our heart is beating. Our food is digest. I mean, things, these miraculous things are happening all the time. I mean, we are walking around miracles. It's pretty exciting if you spend time to appreciate it. Yeah, and it all happens running in the background. We don't even have to give it a second's thought. Even breathing, which we use so much in yoga to focus on when we call our attention to it. But if not, we're still breathing. All of these- We're still breathing. Yeah. Yes. Fabulous things happen. We are a great construction model, right? Can you imagine uh, putting this thing together and having it work? Um, And the hands. I mean, everything we've done- we pick things up, we bring them to our mouth to eat, we hold, we touch, you know, the tactile sensations. I'm also a massage therapist, as you know, the idea of being able to touch and then to recognize that if you touch anything, anybody, any being, that person is also touching you right back. It's not a one-way exchange. It's not a one-way thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's one of the um, hardest things that I've probably ever experienced that I can think of in my conscious adult life was stepping away from my massage table in 2020, not being able to touch. To do it. To do it. And people are like, oh my goodness, I miss you touching me so much. I miss your, um, your massage and the energy and the healing. It was a surprise to many that... I missed it just as much. And that I always say I've had an abundance of touch in my life. I grew up in a family of huggers, seven brothers and sisters, a mom and a dad. You know, when when dates would come into a family party, the first time Larry, my husband, or any of uh, my other sibling spouses would come and we would say, okay, it's time to go from this party now. 
all the brothers-in-law would gather around the newbie and say, well, you might as well pour yourself a cup of coffee because this is like a 45 minute to an hour leave because there's just, <laughs> there's so much <laughs> and goodbye. <laughs> but that idea of touching and what we can do both in the physical sense of touching or just in the not scrunching up of our nose is a touch to the people in our life and how I started this earlier. Walking down the street with you in New Hope, which you probably never even recognized the impact that it had, was your ability to touch somebody who was across the street. Hello, how are you today? Remembering the names of the people that you pass on a regular basis who are your neighbors, remembering their dogs' names. Or, <laughs> and when you didn't, you said, hello, I'm Sherry, what is your name? And you collected names. And that was a huge shift for me to see that level of engagement, touching and inclusion that didn't require my hands to physically touch somebody. So for that, I am truly grateful for that and so many other things since I didn't, we were, I was going to talk about the Costa Rican retreat that we spent a week on, but. Oh, and we it, didn't even get around to that. No, we'll have to do that again, but. <laughs> Another it, time. I know. That was, was, a, that was a wonderful thing. One of the things that happens in a small community like New Hope is when you walk around, you get to know the people and the dogs that move around, the shopkeepers that have their stores, you know, and a lot because I have dogs, I'm out there all the time. Now I would be out there anyway, but because I have dogs, I'm out two or three times a day. So I have great opportunity yeah. and I do like that. Now, having grown up on that farm in Mississippi, I was an only child. Um, I was incredibly jealous of my friends that lived in the little village because, you know, when I went to visit them or would spend the night or would go hang out with them, there was all of this interaction. So when I bought a house, a requirement was sidewalk. Oh, that, see, yeah. You wouldn't think that that would be on the non-negotiable list, right? But it was. I wanted to be in a village. I did not want to be on the, the farm. I mean, although the farm had wonderful things, it was, um, um, well, you know, I, I think we get what we need in our lives. Um, the Buddhists believe that we pick our lives before we come into it. Mm -hmm. And I think I, especially at 77 and looking back, I I think I can subscribe to that because I look at all of the things that I've had, you know, the, the solitude as a child and then being ready to not have so much solitude and, and being in a village. And I'm so glad you came to join me in my village, you know, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I think I did the opposite. I grew up in the village and then was like, Oh, I like the space of, uh, having only one other person that lives with me um, on a regular exactly. basis, right? Yeah. Right. We get, what, we get what we need. Apparently I needed a lots of siblings and a huge family of support. And you had that. Mm -hmm. And then you moved on to have something else. 
Yes. Yeah. You know, my family is very unique in that um, we all live within less than a hundred miles of each other. Somebody, some of us within less than 20 miles of each other. Mm -hmm. And um, even my siblings, their children, their grandchildren, even some great grandchildren that we already have. I'm already a great, great aunt. But as a family, we get together at least one time a year where almost everybody is present. Our huh. Christmas party has 65 people and they're all in my direct birth line of wow. myself or siblings. And then again in the summer with outdoor barbecues and picnics. So one of the things that my mother really instilled on us was she would say this all the time. You can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. So learn to get along and love them and depend on them because they'll be the people that will always be there when you- It will be there. Yes. And so I'm very, very blessed to have a family that, not that we don't argue and have the same things families do, but in the end, we always come back to family is on the top of the list. Um, and if anything ever happens in our family, we descend, <laughs> everybody yes. shows up. But very blessed with having a tribe I was born into and then the yes. tribes that I've created throughout my that life. you've created. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we wound up in our creative tribe. Yes, me too. And I am so, <laughs> so blessed um, to have met you in this random meeting of being at the same retreat at the same time. And then for all of the wonderful gifts and inspiration and guidance that you have given me. Gratitude, thank you for spending your time. I really appreciate that you took time out of your schedule and your time to um, chat and let others hear about our very special relationship. I am very grateful for all that you bring to me because like you say, it's not a one, it's not a one-way street. Your knowledge, your enthusiasm, your dedication to everything you do is just wonderful to watch. Mm -hmm. And all the incredible massages that I've had from you, I oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> Talk about touch. Yes, I sure do miss them <laughs> with Bell oh. laying in the corner while we're working as well. <laughs> Listen, take care. I Be love well. You. Yes. I love you too. Be Bye. Well. See you soon when we get back to the East um, Northeast. Very good. Where are you now? We are in South Carolina at a place called Huntington Beach State Park. Um, okay. I have maybe a quarter of a mile and I'm on the beach. So I've been having really long walks with oh. on the beach and there's tons of wildlife. So yeah, we're just um, spending as much time as we can out in the healing properties of nature and watching, um, just watching the different birds. And uh, there's just so much to see and experience. There's so much to see. I would love to stay connected, to stay yoked. Join the Sangha by hitting the subscribe button, sharing your favorite intentional tip, joining me for a class on the mat, or better yet, finding me in nature. This yoga off the mat journey is courtesy of Integrated Natural Health, where we connect wisdom and wellness through nature.
Make someday your now day. May all of our thoughts be divinely inspired. May all of our words be authentic and true. May all of our hearts be touched with love and joy. And may the time that we devote to our practice of compassion bring peace to all beings. Om Shanti. Namaste. Now that we've arrived here, I would not change a thing. Knew that we'd survive here and all the goodness we would bring. Of this I sing. Everybody swimming in sunshine, everybody feeding fine, everybody join the front line, ain't nobody left behind. Everybody swimming in sunshine, everybody feeling fine, everybody join the